Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay. Today, I have the pleasure of a returning guest, so much so that I think we might even start calling him a co-host. Barney Dicker, it has been three months since we last spoke. An inordinate length of time, fires, we've both had some international travel, yeah. various, you know, pandemics and things have occurred. But I wanted to start by saying you have just returned from the UK. You've just come back from England. And yeah. I know very little biographical information associated with you. When you return to the UK, what areas do you return to? Is this the area that you grew up in? Can you give some biographical information about what parts of the UK you call home? This trip, I went to London, Shrewsbury, London. Mm. And I was born in Guildford, uh-huh. so not too far from London. And uh, I saw I saw some London family when I went over. Uh-huh. And I went up to Shrewsbury to see family. Um so one bit so so then at some point so i grew up in guildford then we moved to herefordshire so looking out on the golden valley mm-hmm. the black mountains mm-hmm. um and then i and so so fa- there's some family ended you know is up that way so that's the shrewsbury connection mm-hmm. but then my dad has lived in various different places and he's ended up in shrewsbury too okay um and the last place that i lived before moving to germany was swansea Ah, interesting. So southern, I would say southern, and not not uh, you know I've got some friends down in Devon and Cornwall. Mm-hmm. Um, so so pretty pretty southern, but I love the north. The north is great. I mm. love the the size of the the buildings and all of that kind of industrial stuff. And and I've had I've always I've always had really nice. They've always been really nice trips when I go up north and you know to keep going edinburgh i think is lovely (laughs) Um, so it's all pretty lovely it's all pretty lovely yes well okay so that gives some interesting so when you when when you did your formative you know initial game playing yeah where were you specifically in that at that time period yeah i remember well, okay. So I I remember a box of shreddies mm-hmm. coming out, and it had um, Dungeons and Dragons stuff on it, and mm. uh, that it had a it had a hologram on the front of the box. Mm. And I think, and and so of course that was a little archway that then they had stuck the hologram onto at the back. And sadly, I don't have that anymore. But that was, it was a skeleton wading through dungeon water let's mm. say and that must have been a mini that mm-hmm. they photographed and um you know that was just i just thought that was amazing and the the dungeons and dragons cartoon was on telly and there were mm-hmm. you know other things a bit like that and for one fancy dress competition at my school fate in surrey mm-hmm. i dressed up as the as the the hero with the 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 lightning bolt uh, bow and arrow mm. so so i guess that was already that kind of that kind of part of my mind was already activated but i think then it was moving to herefordshire that fighting fantasy mm. and things like that started to creep in and then a neighbor of mine somewhere near malvern had been exposed by someone i can't remember to this whole world and i bought 
dungeon or I swapped or something. I bought Dungeon Quest off him, mm. uh, which is not a great game, but but uh, there we go. And he was really into Anne McCaffrey, and we played uh, or kind of he played i seem to remember i didn't really get much chance to play on the computer but he had a dungeons and dragons dungeon crawl mm. video game um but he i also think i got some of my oldest white dwarfs off him right and so it kind of spun out a little bit a little bit from from there but the community in in Herbstershire was still yeah. was still you needed to know someone like there weren't any there weren't any stores and towns or this kind of stuff. You really had to know someone that had some existing stuff that you could then swap in order to get well, access to it. Or I, yeah, I, I think, I think there are, he might've been in America for a while or something. Ah, okay. might, maybe not, or there might be an older brother or that kind of okay. thing. I think there are two aspects there. I think one aspect is you kind of need somebody to, to show you that something is a good idea. Hmm. And I think that that's as good, you know, that's as good a rule today as ever. And to an extent, I think that's what online reviews are to a degree. You you know, mm. you sift through them and you get a sense of this real product that you're, you know, that is currently kind of hypothetical in your life. Mm. Um, but there was a model shop, Hereford Model Shop. And so once the penny had dropped that there were also miniatures and all of that kind of thing, they kept them. I went, I would go to the model shop and mm. they kept them behind the desk. Of course. And you had to ask to go round. And I seem to remember um, that no more than two people were allowed at a time. <laughs> and, and I remember just looking through these blister packs and, and I, 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 it was, really quite incoherent my selections mm. i think it was based on pretty much a, you know a bit a bit like you what seems to be a really good miniature that is worth getting mm. it is interesting the translation from immediate friend contact and i think you know, i mean certainly games workshop as a company acknowledges this and it's maybe it, it's internal use documents only but the nature of initial contact, always being a friend, as you say, occasionally, typically with an older brother, and then to the point where you realise, no, wait, this is something actually that's in the world that I can engage mm. with. And mm. then, as you say, the early purchasing of miniatures and these kind of the the kind of talisman-like properties that these things have um, in you know in one's own life, <laughs> and it, it's interesting the the way that we all have these pretty shared stories associated with how we first discovered these things of a particular age. Now mm -hmm. to be the children of a gamer or in, even mm -hmm. now in some cases, the grandchildren of a gamer gives mm -hmm. a different introduction to the whole thing. And mm -hmm. I think the, I periodically with my wife go back and watch a show called unsolved mysteries. I do this all the time. Actually, I'm always living I recently rewatched The Young Ones, for example. So I'm okay. constantly living in the 1980s and early 1990s in some way in my life. But my wife and I mm -hmm. periodically go back and watch a show called Unsolved Mysteries. And every time Dungeons & Dragons comes up, it is with the view that this is some strange demonic cult that is ripping away children and turning them into murderers. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that narrative is now so completely lost. I mean... Young folk mm -hmm. will see this with computer games periodically. You'll have kind of aging presidential candidates. They're all aging presidential candidates now. They will occasionally mm -hmm. throw in, you know, and 
you know, violent video games, you know. So, I mean, I guess children mm. still see this, but the nature of something which is so forbidden in one regard, I, I occasionally joke with people, it's like the, the war on drugs, right? Mm. The, these early game developers had the games like drugs, right? You couldn't want any better marketing for teenage mm. youth than to mm. make something forbidden, you know, the whole nature of having to go behind the counter and, you know, only mm. a couple of people being allowed behind there and all these kind of curious rules. But what I find mm. fascinating in my own life is that I can't, there are certain magazines that I can't get access to anymore. Like there were four mm-hmm. magazines in my gaming that are long since, you know, destroyed or landfill or what have you, um, that were really important. I think we've talked about this historically with a yeah. fellow who, you know, lived in the Shetlands and actually sent me, you know, fighting fantasy books. We exchanged our favorite fighting fantasy books through the mm. mail. And the Shetlands is just such a wonderful, you can't imagine what the Shetlands was like growing up in Australia. Like the nature, I mean, I had been to, you know, I think as far north as I'd been was Aberdeen as a relatively small boy. But mm. um, the, the nature of getting this parcel from the Shetlands and then sending back a parcel and this must have gone on for a couple of years. Mm. So, you know, there are all these little bits and pieces that, you know, created this thing as well. But you did touch on mm. this notion of online reviews. And this is something mm. that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about because we, for folks listening in, when I say Barney and I spoke three months ago, it was on Barney's podcast, Loco Ludus, the, the Tom Barbelay two-part expose, let us call it that. Yes. Um, yes. Which I actually, we talked three months ago. It's only recently been released. It's been released, I think, sometime um, in February. Yeah, I think, I think about, it was, I just about, just about managed to do it before I went to the UK. So about yeah. three weeks ago or something, exactly. I lined them yeah. all up and, yeah. and I had these three interviews three in a row. and I was thinking, yeah. oh, how shall I do it? Yeah. So. Yeah. The Dirk, the Dice one, we'll, we'll talk about that um, maybe a little bit later as well. So mm-hmm. one of the things we did cut a lot of audio and I, let me tell you about my day before I begin this discussion. <laughs> do it. Yeah, I, please. I, um, I used to do a podcast with a fellow from Jackass, the you know, running into walls, oh, yeah. jumping off buildings, this kind of stuff. Um, oh, yeah. I traveled across the US, met him, uh, and then the podcast fell apart. And I thought, well, I've got an existing audience here. So I knew a fellow who's, who used to listen to some of my podcasts, and he desperately wanted to do a podcast with me. His name is Connor Sides Bone. Now, Connor Sides Bone lives in Pittsburgh, but he, uh-huh. very similar to us, except he's about a decade younger, probably a decade younger than you, a little bit more than, than me. Um, okay. He, so he has all these similar things. Anyway, the podcast was called Attic Aficionados. Um, okay. I am going to empty my attic with Connor Sites Bowen today. I have taken the day off work to do this wow. duty. As one would expect, my attic is full of nothing but treasure. So mm. let me, anyway, I'm prefacing this by saying that last time Barney and I recorded was a regular working Friday for me as opposed to a Friday that I've taken off. And I was a little bit irritable. So there were a series of things that actually had to be removed. One of the things that was cut was a discussion associated with the absence of critical reviews in this broader hobby, be it, you know, games, games of a slightly nerdic persuasion. Let's just call them that, be they war games. Nerdic? Nerdic. Is nerdic the word? I believe so. That's good. That's good. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so this was something that was too controversial for you to include in your (laughs) podcast. But I thought this was certainly well, well lined up fodder. For my rules yeah. of matter. In fact, really, the whole premise of the podcast is based on this notion. Now you're moving into the space. Now you are becoming another one of these online reviewers. Can you talk <laughs> a little bit about the nature of the concept of the word review 
with regards to what you see going on online with regards okay. to this amazing love fest that is yeah. the gaming hobby. Okay, so um, I think I think that criticality doesn't have to be always you know always connected to criticism or negative criticism mm. i think you know we're talking really when it's good we're talking about digging in and really you know thrashing through things to make a game a discussion uh, you know richer better mm. and to perhaps to 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 trigger new things so you know it's kind of like the 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 it powers the motor in some ways you know coming from an academic background it's the same thing i think it's much it's much more productive to uh to to outline what you think is good rather than to spend all your time bashing what other people say mm. and i th and so i think it's very interesting because my perspective on academia is in fact the antithesis well, my experience of academia is in fact the antithesis of what you describe so I think there are now, certain areas of academia yeah. that behave the way you describe, but they're just not the areas of academia that I've ever had any interaction with. But then, then maybe, maybe those, that, those, those that, that's that's my ethics for mm. it, if you like, mm. because I have I have read papers and been to conferences where people just criticise somebody else who's normally not in the room. Mm. Um, uh, so I, I think, so to let you into a little secret, when I write. Often the first thing I write is is something much more like a criticism of of some set of ideas, and that that is almost a process I feel you have to get through to get to the the positive thing that you want to say to to understand the same thing in positive terms that you yourself can define but but you know to work through th those other sources those other ideas other debates that that i that are addressing the same area but i feel strongly differently about um you know that's often a first piece and then you read it back and you think that's just too negative it's taking up too much time talking about something i don't like what's much more productive is to to spend your time talking about things that you do like so so looking for those um positive elements i mean you know um so so since i've been on your show i've started my podcast and you've been on my podcast um i i haven't i haven't ever been sent anything for free to review so i don't know what i can't speak about that kind of experience of course i just like i've said i i talk about the things that interest me that i like i don't know if that kind of I don't know if that counts as promotion of of them. Um, I mean, you know, when we when we did talk about this this issue of criticality in the interview and and that got taken out, I I, I think my my I was I was slightly more reticent about that lack of criticality because I think you know your you you exist and other folk exist who are pretty. Um, forthright in their opinions and um you know if if you, there's a degree there's a degree to which the the critical realm cannot be nested within the commercial realm because the commercial realm has to be best game ever this month um most exciting thing you're ever going to experience this month buy it now buy it now special offer double the price but, um i mean i guess my concern with that 
is I, I, have, I don't think I've ever received. Oh, I found a bug on a website with some Kev Adams miniatures once, and I got an extra couple of miniatures because I found that bug and complained to the person. <laughs> The, you can't, that's a, you that's a job well done. You that's couldn't find the well miniatures done. unless you were in the Spanish language setting. But, you know, you wanted to find those miniatures, or I certainly did. Anyway, so, yeah. but aside from that, I've never received anything free. And actually, I've paid well above list price for a bunch of things. Yeah. My main concerns were when I was critical of this rule system, which spiraled out of control and got me kicked off a podcast, it was because there was a complete absence of the enemy in a really curious way. It was a modern rule system, and the enemy here were Iraqi insurgents primarily, but also potentially the Taliban. And I thought it was just really surreal that you could write a rule system that didn't give equal weighting and then had clearly like large gaps in the rules. Now, as you say, the best, the latest, everything on sale, must get out now. I view this hobby that there are amazing things that come out of these, this hobby. Kev Adams is a sculpting being one of them. But through that, there's also a hyper-capitalism, and I've talked more with Matthew Gibson about this, that I think actually damages, it, it reduces the number of potential players that could be participating in this thing. And that strikes me as being incredibly short-sighted. And really the, the role that certainly I feel with regards to not only rules creation, but also with regards to rules analysis is to improve this thing incrementally away from a capitalist path, which I find very mm. curious in some mm. regard. Mm. Let us talk a little bit about Kickstarter in this slide. Um, yeah, oh, can I just say seven. one thing there? That the thing one one thing that, that that really gets me is the degree to which people heavily invest in one, maybe two systems. And and I am generalizing there. Mm. And there so there are lots of people who who, you know, have big interests across the board in lots of different things. But, you know, if you think about the success of Games Workshop and Warhammer and you think about the success of Dungeons and Dragons and you mm -hmm. think about that capitalist model, it is very much about dominance and, and you know, generating the most profit. And really what there is is a massively rich ecology of all sorts of people doing all sorts of things. And I and I sometimes wish that, you know, when you hear people talk about, oh, my game group only wants to play D&D, &D, and you've talked a little bit about that before, you know, about the difference between when you run D&D &D or you run your own rules. You know, that my heart kind of sinks that, that people who are into this hobby aren't open enough mm. to 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 think well i'll i'll try this and i'll try that and how does that change my thoughts about this and and it partly is about the money that you have to shell out but mm. then it's the, it would kind of be the same if you shelled it out across the board as opposed to only in one or two directions and perhaps normally with the most easily accessible most uh, common examples so so a bit more diversity that would be my that would be my response to what you said just there kickstarter mm. kickstarter so you want me to talk about my 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 new my my newbie experience with kickstarter do you and i well i have i think it's in the order of about it's maybe more than 40 now projects that i've put money into a kickstarter it could be close see to i can't imagine that that's yeah. that's like you're you're you're, you're a long tooth completely but I, what interests me is actually well let's start with your experience with kickstarter yeah. how many projects have you 
put money into and what has your experience been so far? I've backed two mm-hmm. and I think I might back a third. Mm. Um, the first one was Electric Bastion Land mm-hmm. by Chris McDowell, so, which we've talked about, which I just completely love. And for my 40th birthday, my brother bought me one of the one of the luxury, you know, what do they call them? Luxury rewards. Mm-hmm. So I've contributed a borough for Bastion in the book, and I appear on the back cover flying a kite. So mm. there's a little picture of me in bastion and you know i wasn't expecting that when i when i backed it i just really was so excited about and and am still so excited about it um when my brother suggested wouldn't you like something more wouldn't you like something like that that has massive personal significance because then you know within that within that book is the record of my my 40th birthday, my mm. 40 years of existence, mm-hmm. and my brother's uh, kindness, generosity uh, in supporting that. Mm. And a little bit, there's something of my creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all of it, but, but something that, 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 that you know, speaks to, to use that phrase, speaks to that project of Electric Bastion Land. And especially having interviewed Chris on my podcast you know it, the whole the whole that whole thing for me is if you like very romantic you could say it's mm. got a whole lot of romance about it the second one that i supported is is kind of completely self-congratulatory to the price of eight pounds which is the mud harbor zine as part of the zine quest which kickstarter has been doing for rpgs which uh, my friend Dave Aldridge and his wife Claire have put together, and that's that's a, that's a setting for the Black Hack, and that I've been playing in with Dave and have characters for, and and he was he was um, I don't know kind enough in uh, you know um, enthusiastic enough I don't know trusting enough to add me and uh, another podcaster called Colin Green as as the stretch goals so i've never been a stretch goal before so with my so i so i thought well you know i'm gonna have to fund it just on the off chance that that one that one you know supporter makes all of the difference so i bought my own i tried to buy my own stretch goal status which is pretty shameless really but it, it 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 actually reached the stretch goals in one day um, it's a you know it's a modest but exciting and nicely designed project and and I'm so chuffed to be having something public you know having had lots of academic things published or relatively many things published in academia it's amazing to have something finally published in in a gaming context and the third Kickstarter is is probably the 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 game night lancer that i interviewed Mm -hmm. the uh, the designer about and i have to say i wasn't sure if i would back it because uh, because we were kind of put in contact with each other and it sounded good and i wasn't sure at all it seemed very complicated from what i could gather but i really really enjoyed talking to joe joe norris Mm -hmm. and um and and the way he talked about designing the game and the different elements of the game really makes me think that that's a nice that's a nice design that's a nice game so i haven't got round to it yet but i think that's going to happen mm. 
And I that's have... all. That's all I can say. Apart from clicking on there sometimes okay. for just for fun and and realizing that the thing's already funded six mm. months ago or something. So I have backed eighty nine Kickstarter. Eighty nine? Did you say forty before? I yes. I'm I'm blocking clearly a lot of these. <laughs> I I've lost friends through Kickstarter. I had two people who did Kickstarters where because they failed to do the Kickstarter, I have nothing more to do with them. And I think for me, it is, I've thought about putting things on Kickstarter and I've never gotten there because the time and promotional commitment for doing it is Mm. far greater than I could ever afford in my current day-to-day life. You get Mm. small glimpses of this about how difficult it is to actually find a time to record a podcast. But uh, Mm. personally, I think Kickstarter is an amazing vehicle and can be used so beautifully and so productively to completely Mm -hmm. bypass a lot of nonsense. But I have had some mm-hmm. really bad experiences through Kickstarter. For all my anti-capitalist, anti-what-have-you rant, my day-to-day life is very methodically corporatist in nature. I release uh, a much-beloved iOS app on a weekly basis, and I have a whole series of things that I have to do through my week methodically in order to make sure that this app comes out and that it is mm-hmm. of its best quality, let us just say. Mm-hmm. So my day-to-day life is solely corporatist, capitalist in its existence. And I have a very particular perspective associated with once you take someone's money, you have a responsibility to behave in a certain fashion. And that mm-hmm. comes through every aspect of my day-to-day life. So mm-hmm. when I back projects where clearly this isn't even a tertiary job for the person... It's something that they may or may not do. And you can only really discover this after you engage with them. Mm-hmm. Usually there is some friction. Now, it's interesting that Dirk the Dice recently interviewed Liz Danforth. Yeah. Liz Danforth was involved with a Tunnels and Trolls Kickstarter. I, it's the only negative Kickstarter review that I maintain online because it identifies mm-hmm. very clearly how every aspect of this thing was designed for it not to come out on time or on budget. And in parallel to this, and although the gentleman is dead now, the creators of the game went on and did other Kickstarters while they hadn't fulfilled the initial Kickstarter and Mm. also travelled internationally promoting the stuff in the Kickstarter before they'd actually delivered the Kickstarter. Mm. So Mm. there were a series of things through that where, and I memorialise it because it shows in documentation form how I view creating work product as well. So the commitments through Kickstarter are, and this year I've decided because of the emotional investment that I'm Mm. not actually, Kev Adams, maybe. But aside from that, Kev Adams (laughs) is the only. There's always an exception. There's always an exception. But aside from that, and I'm in the case now, so for example, I received a parcel through the week that I assumed was going to be some winter Russians. It was a Kickstarter that I backed last year. And I said to my co-worker, who's also moderately miniature-obsessed, oh, these are the Winter Russians. These are wonderful. I took them out, looked at them, and realized that they were actually another Kickstarter that I backed, French Indian Wars winter uniforms. Uh And Uh so a large portion of my lead pile is based on this Kickstarter thing. And I think historically I looked at it as something that I would do with my own projects. But now Uh it, it moved into this realm of, I really want to support these people doing good work. 
Yeah. And that, I think, is a majority of the reason that I... And when I find people that don't do good work through Kickstarter, when I yeah. find people... Who, and look, the most recent example where I was actually able to get the plastic kits as part of the thing, yeah. the fellow yeah. is just completely overwhelmed. He works two jobs, he has a family, and he's trying yeah. to get miniatures out in the same process. Really, I think he should never have run the Kickstarter if he couldn't actually get it out. Yeah. So you do get a very intimate sense. And also this hobby of ours, let us call it this thing, is yep. a red light pinnacle of Kickstarter. Yep. The amount of money in miniature yep. gaming that is made through Kickstarter yep. far outstrips video games, far outstrips food, books, yep. everything. This is one of the ways that this hobby of ours shows its true light in the world today that yeah. these bespoke boutique manufacturers yeah. could get millions of dollars through this thing. And I think Kickstarter, I am full spectrum with regards to my views on Kickstarter, but I think it's <laughs> a truly amazing thing. And in general, the benefits far outweigh the negatives, but I do yeah. think a small number of the Kickstarters that I've backed have not come through. Unfortunately, yeah. two of my friends were part of this for separate Kickstarters, and I just walked away from them because I feel ethically there are reasons that a Kickstarter can fail legitimately. Not mm -hmm. putting in the effort is not a reason for a Kickstarter to fail legitimately. So, yeah, I guess I guess by stating 89 as the magic number, mm -hmm. and I've been putting money into Kickstarters for 12-plus years. I mean, basically when the site started, I started putting money into them. And in contrast to this, there are a variety of other sites which I look at periodically, but mm. um, Kickstarter internally mm. puts a lot of effort into the promotion of the individual projects as well. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's very, very useful there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, mm -hmm. I've got, I've got two, th two things to add to that. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's like anything in the world, there are there are good outcomes and bad outcomes. You know, if you think of book book publishing, there are good books published and there are terrible books published. So it's so it's it's in in that sense, it's it's you know don't don't shoot the messenger, isn't yes. it? And and actually through the um, through the electric bastion land and and with with Chris McDowell, um, there, there was some really illuminating stuff there too. Where you know, of course, with Kickstarter, just in case anybody's listening who has never backed a Kickstarter or doesn't really understand it or whatever, you know, they don't take your money until after the the completion date, do they? So yeah. there's a kind of ethics there. It's not that you're just throwing money at someone. Certainly. If if the, if there are enough backers, then they will take your money. So so that's a kind of a hurdle. But then then there started to be this this discussion with the kind of fulfillment elements. Mm -hmm. Um and backer, backer it or something. I don't, I don't quite get it. But basically, it then the, the you know Chris was very um, communicative, uh, especially on Discord with the the Electric Bastion Land and into the odd uh, followers mm -hmm. who are very you know very passionate. And he was keeping everybody posted that he's just waiting for clearance for this and this and this and this. And so it's very clear that actually there is a kind of if you like a bureaucracy, mm -hmm. there is a there is a, a machinery that that goes on that he then has to submit something to. So it was only once things had completed and something else had happened, like 
all of the backers were offered the chance to get another copy of the book and so on and so forth. Mm. And only then did I get the questions from him to, to, to if you like, to redeem my reward of, of, of the borough. So there was a really clear process. And I got the impression as well that he was being kind of guided by Kickstarter mm-hmm. or those affiliate Certainly. systems. So, so that to me seemed like a real as you say you know a real a real committed effort to make it straightforward and simple to give everybody the feeling that the project is moving on and it, that it's manageable yes. i mean you know you've you're you're touching on kind of manageability issues about whether it's actually possible um so so it, so, so i think one has to be as as um, selective as one is any other time with anything else i suppose I think what fascinates me through it is that if it wasn't there, I wouldn't yeah. have discovered or had created some amazing miniatures from Kev Adams. I mean, he does, although his stuff is available after it goes through Kickstarter, but the sure. whole getting money in just to get him to sculpt stuff is done pretty exclusively through Kickstarter. And then there's obviously the long tail of the miniatures being sold after the fact, aside from those yeah. that are sold through Kickstarter. Yeah. But I think that whole thing, for someone who I think is brilliant and whose work needs to continue on in any means necessary, mm. that to me strikes a really strong and resonant chord that this is a good thing. And you know exactly, if you like, you, you basically know exactly how many copies of something you need to make because those are the backers. And of course, you can continue after it, but you know exactly how you know what the what the size of your audience is Certainly. if you like and that i think is you know hugely hugely valuable so i think we've covered kickstarter i think we've covered reviews yeah. what what rules are you playing currently and what gaming groups are you a part of okay well i'm still completely into electric bastion land mm-hmm. and into the odd and i ran a game probably i don't know a month ago or something and that had no combat in it mm. It was a heist with no combat, mm. so that was good. And the, the, I, I tried to get some some threat introduced, and they did a dance off. Um, and the dance off was successful, and it basically meant that they got some lackeys to come with them rather than getting beaten up by some rough rough gang members. So that was really really good fun, a lot of fun. Um, there's uh, which I've talked about on my podcast. There's there's a little group of us through anchor and through the audio dungeon discord who are uh working through a series of hammer horror inspired roleplay games and we're and we're kind of juggling our own homebrewed systems the the role of gm cycles amongst the group and people can use whatever bits of systems they want but we're trying to to explore the idea that you that as a player you have an actor persona and a character persona so the actor persona if you like endures across the games and the character persona would pop up in one maybe two films if you like so that's really good fun and we played it we played a game the other night we did vampirella which was an unmade hammer project and i ran zeppelin versus pterodactyls which was another unmade hammer production so these are b-movie horror scenarios and and also trying to get that balance between an open game and the structure of a b-movie horror 
um, film is 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 a nice is a nice fun challenge. Um, I'm playing in an index card RPG campaign, a, a, a cyberpunk setting. I nearly blew up the entire team last game, but only I got injured in the end. And how are you playing uh, that physically or online or? Okay, so so um, apart from Into the Odd, which I ran locally, physically, face to face, Hammer ICRPG, the Index Card RPG, that's online. I've also played, as I mentioned, in this Black Hack, uh, this ongoing. They call it um, this is Dave Aldrich's game, and he, the, the, you know, the, the the term for this is west marches mm. or open table so you can basically drop in as and when and the this this ongoing setting will accommodate you so it's not a campaign in that strict sense mm. um and then when i went to the uk i had the great privilege of some friends of mine play testing my rule system mm-hmm. which which i'm really moving forward on and that was great, and I'm, I'd be happy to, you know, when I'm a bit further with that, happy to come back and talk about that. Mm. I also, you know, and then we can have a real, no, 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 my rules, my rules. Um, um, but I also, with, with, with some friends there, played D&D. I actually played D&D, and mm. I think that's the first time. The Black Hack is basically old-school D&D, but... This was 5e. This was Dungeons and Dragons 5e. And mm-hmm. I, I basically thought I wouldn't be doing that. That was not, that, you know, no no bad bad blood about it. Just not my thing. But mm. there I was. And I and I played a, a, a stout halfling warlock who had um, deep old one eldritch contacts. Mm. So, uh, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm really... I'm really enjoying all of this stuff that's come. Oh, I'm playing in a Call of Cthulhu game as well. That's really good fun because hmm. I try and do a French Canadian accent. Is that online uh, or is that physical? There are that's online again, okay. but there are actually some actual plays of me in the Call of Cthulhu. That's that's on um, Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks, and that's Forget Me Not Call of Cthulhu. And there are a couple on the Black Hack on Dave mm-hmm. Aldrich's D percentile, me playing Rusty, the reliable rickshaw runner. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, s- some online games work better than others, but I've had I've had a few really good ones, and they're not all through Roll20, and they're not all exclusively through Roll20. So sometimes Roll20 is the, if you like, the slideshow, and mm-hmm. we use Zoom. The other night we used 8x8 or Skype, or something else for the audio. So, um, you know, and and a lot of the a lot of the GMs are happy for us to just roll at home. Mm. So we roll our physical dice, and everybody just trusts that they're not making their numbers up. Some people use the bots online, but but this kind of intensive do everything in roll twenty is not. I think I think I've only done that once with someone really one one and a half one and a half. Call of Cthulhu is kind of all there. But we roll at home and we use Zoom for the audio, so it's interesting. It's it's interesting. I hope you know you have that feeling of in five years, ten years, all of this will be much more streamlined and enjoyable. Mm. It is interesting the nature of playing online, and in my case, when I ran a D and D group, 
the player that we started the group for who'd never played D&D previously decided mm. to get involved with D&D online and play, I think he had played two games in parallel with the game that I was mm-hmm. running. My time frames just don't allow for this kind of stuff. I'm nominally yeah. a member of the local train club and just can never get there at the times that they have meetings. And You're I always these- missing the train. I'm always missing the train, yes, both figuratively and literally. The funny thing is, when I first moved to this area, I went to the train club and thought, what kind of, where on earth is this place that this train club is in? Like, it's Mm -hmm. all run down and disheveled and what have you. Three years later, happy homeowner in that area. So, I mean, it really (laughs) is very curious, the nature of the train club. But, yes, I guess what I'm returning to is if there was a way, I've never gotten into, on. I, I very briefly, played what was it dawn of war online with actual online players and i do play a you know rapid fire kind of world war ii mobile game periodically online but the nature Mm -hmm. of meeting with a group of people at a specific time aside from model rail radio which i do through that format is just so difficult with my life as it is currently so we talked offline about in particular, just playing Chaos, because that is a, a stage where people could play it, and yeah. doing potentially an online few series of games of just playing Chaos. Now, yeah. I'm sitting in my podcasting room. I have the table in front of me in a yeah. state where, it, where I could almost do it projected with you know a couple of cameras and what have you. I'll yeah. put that into the definite maybe category with the yeah. view that I would probably do it through Google Hangouts or something like that yeah. with multiple yeah. cameras that people can move between at least through the Hangouts. But yeah, I've never moved to that formality. And what I'm doing currently with just playing chaos is basically codifying and computerizing every aspect of the game. So I can run it in simulation form in absence of having physical players. So I'm very mindful that I need to at least have a strategy with regards to, you know, getting folks involved. And I think that's something that I'm hoping that this room that I'm physically sitting in will be a part of, although bringing in the wave of stuff from the attic is going to be very interesting yeah. in that experience. But yeah. I, I'm very mindful that I should be have more of an online presence. I have played with the chat client whose name escapes me currently that you've mentioned a couple of times. Um, and again, that was very useful for about a two to four week period where I had a few excited people involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then um, it, you know, it just died on the vine, basically. Although I yeah. was constantly putting in stuff, it just didn't. And I think there's an interesting, uh, my experience is solely through open source, but through mapping open source onto podcasting and these other things yeah. as well. In open source, here's the phenomena. You get contacted continuously by people that say to you, if only you do this or this or this, then I'd be able to use your software. And in the first, and I've done this for now 25 years, in the first 10 years, you'll rush in all directions like a headless chicken, doing everything Mm. that these people ask for. And now, Mm. in a reasonable ask case, I will do these things to make it easier. And in some cases, this will get people using the software. But the energy to productivity of people contacting you and saying, if only this would happen or this would happen or this would happen, you start to realize, okay, if I'm already moving in that direction, and it's just a little bit more work, then yes, obviously I'll do it. But if it's uh, if you completely rewrite this thing in a completely different language, then you know we'll use it or all these kind of things. So 
with the just playing cards rule system, I think they're it's sufficiently ro- small for one thing, yeah. it's a small number of pages, and refining within that light as well. That it may just be. I was thinking of doing it through YouTube uh, initially, like putting up videos of me playing and using that as a means of explanation. And I think that's the the lowest barrier for entry, as far as I'm concerned, to get yeah. the information out. Now, getting people excited in real time is a very different thing. Uh, but, yeah, I, I really need to consider how I actually do this with regards to live video and how I organize this and, in particular, finding the right times. I mean, with Bottom Rail Radio, we have two times that we run it in. We run at mm. 9 a.m. here, which is 5 p.m. in the U.K., 6 p.m. where you are, and mm-hmm. also 4 p.m. here, which extends onto the east coast of the U.S. And with those two times, we can capture everyone. We can get mm. Australia and Japan mm-hmm. and everyone mm-hmm. through those two times. So I think this is a similar thing. I just need to find two times. I need to book a certain number of things. And, you know, if no one turns up, then I just push the stuff onto YouTube. But if people turn up, then it starts to, you know, percolate accordingly. I think so. So a couple, a couple of thoughts. I mean, you know, the real, the real promise of all of this is that you are one, one, one is playing with people who are really into it. Mm. You know, you, you're not, you know, you're not just. It's not just your local gaming group who will only want to play D and D. You are, you are playing with people who want to test, play test rules, or to play this obscure system or whatever you know so so there's a much you know there's a there's a greater specificity potentially Mm. in the groups and the other thing is have you considered putting together some kind of what's it is it called tabletop simulator yes have you considered because i would be really interested in that because that would mean that everybody can can move their pieces Mm. and it's got your whole simulation thing going on and and I guess I guess it wouldn't rely on that that kind of video element or or those things so much so much. So that that is something also that I've considered very heavily, in particular because I think Tabletop Simulator is now universally recognised. I mean, people play all the Games Workshop stuff through it, plus yeah. all the minor other players through it. I've not seen any you know bolt action played through it, but maybe I'm just not looking wide enough. So, yeah, I think that's the next step. And the, the benefit of having this stuff codified is that moving it into any system is just a matter of translating from, you know, one language to another associated with moving the code across. Yeah. So I think the yeah. aim is to get it codified, simulatable, then potentially, as you described, move it onto tabletop simulator. So it could be just one of the other catalog of games there. And then, yeah. you know, if our listeners, because I'm, I guess, speaking to listeners here, want to be interested in playing it through Tabletop Simulator, then, yes, it's a, yeah. it's a no-brainer just to pick it up that way. I mean, the, the, the other thing is I think potentially, and, I, you know, I think about this for, for, for my things too, that, um, you know, something, you know, an hour, an hour slot or an hour and a half, two-hour slot like today is also a really good opportunity to just play test something it's you know mm-hmm. it's not the bells and whistles uh, adventure or you know episode or scenario or whatever but it's but it's it's enough to to have a to have a little firefight or to mm-hmm. you know find yeah. find something or escape from a burning building or something and um and i think if those things are dripped a little bit then you suddenly you have you have, I don't know, six hours of play, hmm. and and you haven't eaten up somebody's 
entire day in a different completely different time zone let alone your own or anything mm. like that so so i i'm i kind of think oh what about little and often so yeah no absolutely yeah that would be yeah i'm 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 there i look forward to that so the final topic i have on my list relates to something which is, i don't know i'm, I'm currently recovering <laughs> from a cold and yeah. unfortunately i'm in a stage now where my employer has said, if you're covering from a cold, you need to go and get yourself tested. And the local testing facility, which is with the state, not with the private healthcare, is saying, no, we won't test you because you haven't come into contact with someone that's gone to a country. And I'm like, do you read the newspapers? I mean, do you know uh-huh. what's going on here? Anyway, that's my specific relationship with the state. Do you think the coronavirus as a thing, that gamers are better suited to understanding pandemics but also, as is somewhat comically noted in an article that I posted online, also that gamers are so wonderfully able to disappear for two weeks and then reemerge. <laughs> I mean, what, what are your thoughts yeah. associated with gamers and pandemics just in general? Gosh, well, um, I mean, I'm not a pandemic player, mm-hmm. so so that's not a game that... No, no, that, I'm talking about the... the no, no, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I think this idea that... that that a gamer might survive longer in a, you know, in a, in isolation is really interesting and funny because we've, you know, we've all got minis to paint. We might have games to design. We've certainly got games we've never played. So I think, I think people would probably really welcome that and, and maybe even not consume all of the stored, you know, all of the the provisions Mm. so fast, Mm. maybe, you know, suddenly three hours has passed and, you know, nobody's eaten anything, drunk anything Mm. because they've just been playing. What you really seem to be driving at is, is there a kind of a mindset which might see the, might see gamers surviving? It, it puts me in mind of, um, Mars attacks, uh, where these two young boys who've got separated, from their mother or whatever and the father's traveling across the country to go and find them they start off at a a video game arcade Mm -hmm. and that really helps them when they get hold of the martian weapons and um then as well i watched this actually quite disappointing the new jim jarmusch movie the dead don't die and there's kind of a kind of a thing in that it's but there it's more like comics readers are more prepared but really actually in the end with that film nobody's prepared mm-hmm. um except for uh what's her name uh the the the, the scottish actress Ugh, my mind's gone blank so i i think i think that's an interesting idea mm. um if if you had to make if you had to make constitution checks it might slow you down mm. so so I don't know if you have to carry your dice around and you're only permitted to go into the hospital to get the antidote if you pass your dexterity check or your intelligence check or whatever. I think the nature of these things, in particular, just the sheer incompetency <laughs> that one is <laughs> kind of exposed to through these experiences. I don't know if, if gaming helps with that, but it certainly makes you a little bit more philosophically robust and i guess you don't run fleeing i mean this is the thing that i found living uh-huh. in the area that i live in is you know when you experience automatic weapons fire and you don't run fleeing and you instead create a mythology around 
how you sleep and all these other things associated with that. It really is, yes, I think people that are more mythologically prone or at least mythologically capable may actually have better survival instincts through these things. But at the same point, the raw, dry, almost brutally sarcastic humour that is required to uh, play these games is also a very good panacea for the circumstances that one finds oneself in. I've always found this, I say to people, although I don't read science fiction anymore, as a boy, I consumed science fiction continuously, and it actually enabled me to understand the contemporary world considerably better. And I think there's an element Mm. of that in this as well, that gamers Mm. that are, you know, constantly thinking out of regular, you know, day-to-day life space are probably more capable in some regard of saying, ah, yes, this is the pandemic space, this is the media failing us, this is the politicians failing us, ah, yes. So, I mean, I would like to remain optimistic that uh, these hobbies of ours might actually help us in other ways as well, which is really why I raised this topic. I think I think there were two things there. You know, one thing is, you know, the apocalypse has been endlessly replayed on gaming tables. Yes. You know, for, you know, millions of times, probably. Yes. Um, so that's something. But also then, you know, you've kind of got this idea of character death. Yes. So I think, you know, you, you know, and you were just really, you know, you were talking about that there then. But I, I think I think it's one of those it's one of those social areas where symbolic death is enacted and two other areas that i find really interesting there are climbing and fencing Mm. Um, because you know when you fall off a wall climbing you have just symbolically died Mm. and if you fence with somebody and they beat you they've symbolically killed you with a sword Mm. Um, i suppose it's like paintball as well you know so there are certain certain social activities that symbolically enact that sense of self self annihilation self mm-hmm. you know, demise and and i think uh i think you you know i think you make a very good point that 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 probably that probably plays some role in how we might cope with how it happens in in reality when it lands on our doorstep mm. Well, with that deep conclusion to this discussion, I think we should probably wrap things up here, Barney. But it has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. I'm sorry it's been – I mean, I understand on my side why it's been three months because (laughs) I've been dealing with a bunch of different things. But, uh, yeah, it's just such a luxury to have the chance to chat with you again. It's so. it's great. So so let let's let's try and get some play testing online mm-hmm. and if and you know if I get my act together to GM some games online I will of course invite you to come and join. Let us remain hopeful. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon buddy. Take care. Yep. See you. Bye. <laughs>